Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Our guest this week is Mathieu Ricard, who's utterly fascinating. He is a French guy who's sometimes known as the happiest man alive. Uh, he got that name because uh, he's one of these meditative adepts who took part in an early scientific experiment that looked at the brains of meditators and the readings in, from his uh, brain measurements were off the charts, and so some reporter called him the happiest man alive, and the name has stuck. Um, he uh, is a uh, molecular geneticist by training um, who uh, abandoned his scientific career to become a Tibetan Buddhist monk. Uh, now he lives mainly in the Himalayas, and um, he's written a bunch of books that are incredibly interesting about meditation and also about uh, altruism. His latest book, though, is particularly challenging to me uh, as a guy who likes to eat cheeseburgers. It's called uh, A Plea for the Animals, The Moral, Philosophical, and Evolutionary Imperative to Treat All Beings with Compassion. I do eat cheeseburgers, but I don't feel good about it. And we um, dove into that subject uh, and much more in this conversation. So here you are. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Do you get tired of the whole happiest man alive thing? <laughs> you know, I try about 500 disclaimers, and nobody cares about the disclaimers. So one of my Tibetan friends, one day we were in Korea, and there was a big thing about that. He says, you know, just let it be. Use it for a good purpose. But, you know, if you think five seconds, how can anyone in their right mind believe that we could evaluate the happiness of 7 billion human beings and no scientist would have, it's, in, it's inconceivable. So when you think a little bit about it, you can see it's completely a joke. Yeah, but I would imagine, I agree, I get it, and I want, to, I want you to give some of the disclaimers in a second, but I would just imagine it would be a big cross to bear because, like, what if somebody sees you getting annoyed at an airport counter or, you know... Well, unfortunately, you... they're not all normal. I try not to be too annoyed. I'm, I'm quite happy in general. But, you know, the happiest person in the world is such a ridiculous label. But what to say? Well, first of all, it's better than to be called the unhappiest person in the world. Right, right. <laughs> and then it gives you an occasion to say, look, any man and woman could look at, to, to find, to be the happiest pers person in the world, provided they look for happiness in the right place and not turn their back to it. So trying to turn it into a little bit of talking what genuine happiness could be. <laughs> but the worst thing that happened to me once, I was giving a talk near, uh, at Vancouver University, then in, the, in a kind of hall, which was a cinema. You know, cinema, they put the name of the movie with big, big letters at the entrance. And, and then there was the happiest man in the world, you know, like the program from seven to nine. <laughs> I almost didn't dare to go in, you know, it was so embarrassing. <laughs> so how did you get the, this moniker? How did it come? Yeah. Well... We were uh, doing study with Richard Davidson. Yes, who's been a guest on this podcast. He's really exactly. the so leading. Great neuroscientist, yes, work yes. with emotion, and one of the world leaders in work in studying the effect of mind training or meditation on the brain, right? So among all the different types of meditation, because there's no such thing as meditation with a big M, it's like you say, I'm training. Oh, great. What do you do? Badminton, rugby, American football, or, or swimming? No, it's not quite, not quite the same. So likewise, meditation or mind training, it depends what you train. Are you training focused attention, compassion, or open presence and emotional balance? 
whatever you will train in, that skill will be magnified and you will see different areas of the brain being changed. So we, were speci- we, were, we realized that among all the meditative states, the one that induced the, the greatest uh, change in magnitude in the brain uh, you know, as a voluntary mental act, when you sit there and suddenly you, you generate in your mind a particular state of mind, it was not focused attention, it was not trying to deal with your thoughts, it was compassion. That was, uh, for in, in long-term meditator, giving rise to an extremely high increase of certain brain waves in the so-called gamma frequency, which has to do with coherence in the brain and in areas connected with well-being, the sense of affiliation, positive emotions, and things like that. So, okay, I was one of the first guinea pigs, and then there was 20 or 25 other long-term meditators who came with basically the same uh, kind of uh, you know effect, and it was men and women, Easterners, Westerners, uh, monastics, and lay people. The main criteria was how much practice you have done, and it was very similar. But since there was such an exceptional sort of magnitude of activation, as Richie said, was never recorded before in neuroscience, so it was something interesting. So then some, the other ABC, the Australian ABC television, was there doing a, a documentary on happiness. So then they came to film there. They came to film in Nepal to see the meditator in context. And the last image of the movie, I was coming down the hill from my hermitage, was maybe this is the happiest person in the world. Okay. Silence for two, three years. And then one morning I got, a, oh, I was in, in Nepal. I, midnight, I got a frantic call from the BBC News Hour. And I said, what's going on? You know, I said, okay. Maybe. <laughs> and they say, oh, uh, there was an article this morning in the Independent saying we find the happiest person in the world. Front page article. <laughs> what does that? What is it about? You know, I said, well, you know, I'm so very nice. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, and then I thought, okay, this is like a crazy article, but but then it was viral. The next morning in Brazil, the Bangkok Morning Post, out of control. Then I thought it will it will go off. Then every two three years, <laughs> someone. F- Dig that out and comes again with this story. So what to do? So I, I apologize to my scientist friend because, you know, it's not, nothing to do with self-promotion. But So, you know, I'm happy when they don't mention it. But then when it comes again, here is the happiest person in the world. I say, well, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> as you said, there could be worse nicknames. Yeah, exactly. So, so let's just go back to the beginning for a second. You, you were raised in France, uh, if, as, if I recall correctly. Yes. And, and how did you start meditating? Well, I was raised in a, uh, My mother was uh, very interested in spirituality in general, you know, reading books and all, from all different religions. But in those days, you know, there was very little access in the 60s uh, to Buddhism, to uh, Eastern philosophy in terms of practical engagement. Uh, so when I was 20... And then I had a father who was a philosopher. Myself, I was doing a PhD in, in cell genetics at Pasteur Institute. So nothing much uh, at that time. Meditation was not really <laughs> fashionable, let's say. But I saw when I was 20, a series of documentaries made by a French filmmaker uh, uh, near all the great Tibetan masters who had fled the communist invasion of Tibet, from the Dalai Lama to Bhutan and going through Darjeeling and Kalimpong. And then there was 20 extraordinary, you know, master there 
men and women. And it looks like 20 Socrates, 20 St. Francis of Assisi alive now in this world. What was the documentary called? It's called The Message of the Tibetans. Uh-huh. And one is called the, 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 the Children of Wisdom. And there was a four-series documentary. So I thought, so I had this inclination, uh, sort of searching for something. You know, you don't know what you want to do in life, but you, you don't want a boring life. Suddenly, say, oh, you know, why don't I go and, and see? So I, I took, I, I didn't speak much English. My father uh, asked, had me to learn Greek, classical Greek, Latin, and German, which I, I didn't use very much after that. So I went uh, with a little dictionary and I ended up in Darjeeling. And I met... India, Northern in India. India, yes, Northern India. And I met uh, many, uh, several great masters, including the one who became my main teacher, Kangyur Moshe. So I went, I was, you know, it was really, I would say, I can say, retrospectively a life-changing experience. Not because, you know, some extraordinary stuff with, you know, lights shining in the dark, and, but the extraordinary quality of the presence, you know, the wisdom, the kindness, the simplicity. You have met his son as the Dalai Lama, you know what it is when there's some kind of really genuine person and an immense heart, there's something there that's a bit different. So uh, then I went back, and then uh, I realized how much it has brought me. So I went back and forth six, seven times, and then decided after my PhD to to settle there and do my postdoc in the Himalayas. So meditation in the beginning, you know, basically... Uh, you know, he was not speaking English. He, he was a yogi. It meant he had children. So This is your teacher. My teacher. So, uh, you know, they spoke little English. But basically, I was sitting all day long in front of him, trying to sort of mingle my little confused mind with his vast wisdom, compassionate mind, this sense of trying to blend and resting in that, in a state of, you know, sort of, yes, well-being and trying to gen- to uh, just enhance those qualities which I was perceiving in him to enhance them in myself. I was doing that instinctively. Then later on, when I started to more seriously study Buddhism and uh, the, the techniques, then I went through the whole curses. Uh, the whole what? The whole curses of Buddhist practice. Oh, all the courses, right? Yeah, gotcha. The, the, the uh, curriculum yeah. of Buddhist practice, which you could call meditation in in the sense of mind training. You know the words that we translate as meditation, bhavana in Sanskrit and gom in Tibetan, doesn't mean just sitting there op- with the open eyes and try to think to nothing and relax. It's really cultivating. Yeah. So it could be cultivating a specific quality like compassion, but also. Familiariz- familiarization. So you familiarize yourself with a new way of being, with a new way of translating outer circumstances in happiness or suffering, and also familiarization with the basic nature of your mind. So that's more like what people think of meditation, resting in pure awareness. So that's also a way to familiarize yourself with this basic nature of mind because usually we are so distracted by you know, wild thoughts that we miss that basic faculty to know that is always beneath the, you know, the whirlpool of the thoughts. So in that se- sense, this kind of practice leads to that contemplative meditation. At what point did you decide to become a monk? Well, that was much later because, you know, uh, I'd asked my teacher first, you know, should I have a family or, or not? And he said, wait till you are 30 years old, then you will see. So... 
I was 20 then, so for 10 years I just practiced and you know, I had no special idea. Then I was 30, you know, I was more or less living there in Hermitages as a celibate and both ways seems fine with me, having a family or not. I was sort of, I could see the benefit of both ways. And then I asked again my second teacher, Dilgo Kensei Moshe, the first one, Kensei Moshe had passed away. I said, I'm 30 now, so what should I do? You know, what do you think? He said, oh, it would be very good if you uh, become a monk because then, you know, there's nothing else that, but practicing the Dharma. You know, you don't have, if you want to go for retreats in the mountain for several years, you don't have to worry about leaving a family behind, you know, hurting people. So just devote yourself completely to Dharma. It seems good. So I said, great. So I, I feel more like, uh, you know, sometimes people feel like it's a limitation. You are sort of, when I went back to France as a monk, first time they say, someone said, oh, a monk is almost like a half human being. You know? <laughs> so for me, it was not putting fetters on some of my freedom or something. It was more like a bird coming out of the cage. I felt a great sense of freedom, liberation, unlimited possibilities. I could go here and there. I could stay anywhere I wanted and disappear if I wanted in the hermitage. And then, you know, I was free to pursue that in a transformation, but of course not in a selfish way, because the whole goal of the path is to get rid of selfishness and be of service to others. But it is true that if you have so many personal responsibilities, you have to, for 20 years or so, raise children and really care for them. So it's more difficult to fully devote yourself uh, to serving others here and there, and like I, I try to do today with our humanitarian organization, Karuna, we work in nomadic areas of Tibet, in remote areas of Nepal after the earthquakes, in very poor countrysides in northern India. You know, if you spend your time going r around like that, uh, with the family is not very easy. So but, monk is great freedom. But can't you, uh, speaking as a householder, to use a Buddhist term, as a guy <laughs> yes. who has a kid and a wife and a, a bunch of jobs, can't, can't you enact the Eightfold Path, the Buddhist eight steps toward enlightenment, in a full civilian life? Can't you be compassionate toward everybody around you in, in, a, in that kind of context? Absolutely. I mean, my three main teachers were, we could say, uh, we say more yogi than householders, but they had family. And so, and it's, and it's absolutely a fantastic teaching to see how the quality of wisdom and compassion of the teacher was sort of embracing the whole family and, and have a transformative power with them, not in an authoritative way, but just by the sheer str strength of inspiration and presence and the quality of human being. But at the same time, you know, depending on circumstances, you know, to be completely free, uh, and if you decide to, as I said, to go for several years, uh, as you know, one of my teachers, Mingyur Rinpoche, did, disappearing four years in the mountain, wandering around in the Himalayas, if you, if you have a young children at home, you, it's not very compassionate to do so. So it's just, it's absolutely not indispensable to be to progress to enlightenment. It's just a, a choice that might suit you better to fully dedicate yourself to the path. Now you can, as far as compassion is concerned, definitely you can do that entirely in any circumstances. The more there are human beings around you, the more that compassion as an object to be expressed. But you see, if you want to 
do long retreats where you really train your mind like eight, 10 hours a day for a long period of time, then I think sometimes have this kind of freedom can be useful. Fair enough. <laughs> you're going to hear in my questions that I'm going to bounce around a little bit because I'm just reacting to what you're saying. So right now I'm going to react to something you actually said earlier, which was, and I had a selfish question, which was you were talking about the fact that you you got this name, uh, the happiest man on earth or happiest man alive or whatever it is, um, because you were doing compassion meditation while your brain was being studied, and and the readings, the electromagnetic readings were unprecedented. And I just, I started to think to myself, you know, I do lots of kinds of meditation, including compassion meditation, but I would not say that the kind of meditation that makes me feel the best is compassion meditation. I certainly believe powerfully, I've seen the science that shows that it can do wonderful things for you and that it can change behavior. So I'm a major proponent of compassion meditation. But I feel like if somebody was measuring my brain, that is not the kind of meditation that would produce the most interesting effects. So what does that say, that I'm just a jerk at baseline or I'm doing (laughs) it wrong? What's your reaction Uh, to that? Well, so far, you know, we can study all the different states of meditation. There's so many, you know. Uh, but we generally, with Richard Davidson and, and then other neuroscientists, there have been three main uh, sectors or uh, type of meditation that has been investigated. One is attentive presence, you know, focused attention. And because, we, as you know, we are, you know, Daniel, Dan Gilbert and others have shown that 45% of the time we are not on the task that we are doing. Our mind is running away somewhere else. And it turns out that also these are the unhappiest moments compared to when we are on on the spot, I mean, focused on what we actually do at the moment. Yes, Daniel Gilbert published a study, said a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. That's right. So focusing attention, certainly you know, being present. So the whole thing about mindfulness, being the present moment, it doesn't mean that you are stuck in the present moment as some people think it is. Oh, but if you are always stuck in the present moment, you cannot you know, learn from the past or really seriously think of the future. This is quite stupid because a, a, a distracted mind is certainly not the kind of mind that can meaningfully, you know, and consider the future in a very in a way full of discernment and clarity. While if you are in the present moment, then it doesn't mean that you cannot think. Of course, simply that you are not distracted. So that's great. Uh, one of the main areas of studying meditation to fMRI scanner and electroencephalogram and so forth. The other one is the compassion, loving kindness area. And the third one is sometimes what we call open presence. It's a state where you don't focus intensely on something, but your mind is like a big sky, a big space. And then thoughts come like birds passing through the sky without leaving trace. And this is kind of state, for instance, when we did with the, in, in California with the uh, Paul Ekman, a great psychologist, and Bob Levinson, which when we have a sudden explosion, if you are in that state, then you are you don't sort of startle and fall off your chair. So you're sitting in the lab, you're in open awareness, and, and they make the, a big noise. Like two big gunshots on your ears, and in, everyone jumps, and some people are really big. But with this type of meditation, you hardly move. A little bit blink in your eyes or something, because the mind is such a big space. And that detonation is like a small thing happening somewhere. So this is a third kind of meditation we have been studying. And it turns out, in terms of activation, but you know activation doesn't necessarily mean 
I don't know. That is the most satisfying, or you mean the the, the deepest, the, the electrical, the intensity yeah, yeah. of the activation, the, whether uh-huh. it's with fMRI. I mean, looking at the brain activation, uh, you know, in in brain imaging, or with the electrodes. In both cases, you know, compassion seems to produce a very powerful effect. But you know, it may be that a state of inner peace, really great inner freedom, wonderful serenity. It might be an even deeper and more rewarding state, but it doesn't create a huge activation in the brain. So we must be careful that a strong activation of brain waves doesn't necessarily say, oh, that's the best <laughs> type of meditation. It's intense, but something that is less intense may have a quality that is uh, quite extraordinary. So I should keep going with my compassion meditation. Oh, definitely. <laughs> One of the reasons, if we link that with happiness, is that there is no such thing as selfish happiness. It doesn't work. Well, there are several reasons for that. First of all, subjectively, me, me, me all day long, you feel very miserable. In that bubble of self-centeredness, you feel like stuffy like anything. And then, of course, people will not really appreciate someone who thinks me, me, me all day long. We have a few examples around these days. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not to mention anyone. And so you will not be will perceive in a very positive way. And that's one thing. So it's a lose-lose situation. On top of that, it doesn't work because you it assumes that you will be separate entities and you could build your happiness in your little bubble and that you maybe not mind. You are quite happy. If others get happy, but it's not, not your job, nothing to do with you. So, But that doesn't work because we are interdependent. So basically, it doesn't work. Now, if you look at compassionate attitude, loving attitude, benevolent attitude, altruistic attitude. First of all, all the studies show that it is somehow at least one of the most, if not the most satisfactory uh, state of mind. You know, Barbara Fredrickson, she's a positive psychologist, a pioneer. She called love the supreme emotion. It's the one that widens your mind the most, that brings the most other type of positive effect along with compassion and love. So, and of course, love, by definition, is others-oriented, so maybe also left self-centeredness. So it, it will be perceived by others as a person it is good to be with. So then again, a win-win situation. Plus, it is based on the, rec- on the recognition of interdependence of all beings. No, I don't wake up in the morning thinking, may I suffer the whole day? I might be confused and look for happiness in the wrong place, but... My deep wish is to somehow get out of suffering and find some kind of fulfillment. So it doesn't take rocket science to transport myself in someone else's mind, see our common humanity or common sentience with the animals and so forth, and say, yes, of course, they don't want to suffer either. So that commonality, that baseline that we all share through interdependence is the foundation for being concerned, valuing their wish not to suffer, and being concerned by that, and therefore comes altruism and compassion. So you mentioned animals, which brings us nicely to your new book, A Plea for the Animals. So I started to read this book um, over the last couple of days, and it provoked in me a response that probably is not the response that you wanted in, in in that I started to feel very guilty because I agree with your thesis. Your thesis basically is we ought to be thinking very hard about the well-being of the 
what is it, 70 million other creatures that we share the planet with? I can't remember. It's 8 million species. 8 million species and some... But that we, we kill 60 billion land animal every year and a trillion, which is a thousand billion sea animal every year. That's 120 million per hour. So this is food for thought, you know? Yeah, quite literally. Um, so yeah, I... I, I, I I buy it. I mean, I'm not. You're, I'm, you're not. You don't have an interviewer in front of you who's going to argue with you about the basic idea that we ought to care about uh, uh, about these animals. I would not kill a cow. Yes. However, I eat hamburgers, and uh, I I know somewhere pretty <laughs> deep in myself that I that I'm not happy with this, and uh, yes. so. I, I've said that, but actually I'm going to kind of just shut up for a second and let you make your case about what is the book about and what do you want people to walk away f- uh, with? Well, exactly that. That discomfort. Because there are reasons for that discomfort. Oh, so I had the response you wanted? Yes. Okay. Because I don't want to accuse people and say how terrible you are, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I want to point out that this discomfort is the root for the next cultural change or next step in civilization. When we somehow feel at odd, at odd with something, this we know something there is not quite right, but you know, there's a statu quo, everybody does it. Oh, well, you know, if I don't think too much about it, that will be fine. <laughs> so that's the beginning of a, of a change of mind, a change of views. And if you look at the last two, three centuries, the immense progress of civilization. In France or in Europe, uh, 200 years ago, uh, on Sunday afternoon, you would not take your wife and kids to see a a football match. You would go to, very often, to see people being tortured on the the mall. Hanged or put on the wheel, and their bones would be broken, and everybody would be looked at that as we... Uh, go, go look at sport or go to movie today. It's only 200 years ago. Mm. The last witch was burned in Switzerland in 1825. The last witch was b- 1820. Okay, so so there's still witch uh, sentenced to death in Saudi Arabia today. But basically, okay. So now we have abolished slavery. We have abolished uh, convention, uh, international convention against torture, even though it's still going on. But at least it's illegal. We had the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Now we care more about the right of women, the right of the child. So immense progress. We, we cannot now ascribe a monetary value to human life. You can't say human life is worth $10,000 or something. It's infinite. But there is still a huge incoherence uh, toward 8 million other species. We are everything, they are nothing. Human life is infinite. Other species, intrinsic value is zero unless it's commercial or it has some interest for us. Or if they're our pet. Yeah, they are pet, but because they bring us something, affection, and they're always there. They never get so hungry and things like that. So there's something that we know is a bit wrong. And I'll give you the example of the abolition of slavery in UK in the late uh, sort of 1780s or something like that. Uh, There... Ten people said, you know, slavery is just an abomination. We can't go on like that. And they went to the parliament and said that, and everybody laughed. And they said, you know, economically, it's impossible. The British Empire will collapse. We can't do that. It's out of question. But then they started to move opinion, and then people you were know, not quite comfortable with that. And ten years later, it was gone. 
So now, imagine 50 years later, people say, oh, he was not so bad after all. We could put it back, you know. It made sense. It's kind of convenient to have slaves and things like that. So at some point, uh, you know, there's a consciousness change. And I think the next step is, is coming slowly is that one. Now, for that, you need to put up good reasons. It's not just like gut feeling, you know. And then first to show that, of course, the way we abuse in a way animal and, and leads to these wholesale massacres, you know, 120 millions per hour, it's not nothing. You know, when 1,000 people are, are killed somewhere, it's like the world is in, rightly so, completely upset. But this is happened every hour. And basically we say, oh, why? So why not? So there's something there a little bit to, to think about. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So the idea that we were so special as human beings, and they're so fundamentally different, nothing to do, no, they're almost like objects. And in France, until recently, in the civil code, uh, domestic animals are uh, under the chapter of furnitures. <laughs> so uh, until last year, <laughs> a sheep was a moving table with four legs. <laughs> no, we did some debate in the Senate and they changed to sentient being, you know, just about time. So things are changing. So, you know, if you see that, this, so we have this cognitive dissonance. We love dogs, we eat cows, we wear cows and it peaks. So if at dinner, I get, you know, the hostess gives a delicious meal, and at the end we ask for the recipe, and say, well, I, I took my dog this morning, cut it into pieces, and uh, put some spice, and everybody goes, whoops. You know, why? What's the difference you know, with the pig? Pig are, in fact, more intelligent, smarter than dogs. They don't look as cute, but so it doesn't make sense. Now, you take a you eat snails in France. I don't know if you do that in North America. Rarely, but well, yes. they eat snails. We call snails. it. We call it escargot. It's a French dish. They don't eat slugs. No, we don't eat slugs. So why? There's one is a little home, so they, they don't like to hit the homeless or something <laughs> like that. I mean, there's a cognitive dissonance. 
So we love some animals because they are cute or like that. And for the others, it's a whole set. So this doesn't work. And then again, if you look at the whole situation, look at true evolution. If we were so different, we are most intelligent. But this gives us also not only a power, but also some sense of responsibility. It's not because animals cannot claim their rights to be alive and not to be abused. Precisely because they don't have the faculty to do that, we should be even more careful towards them. But I think the main argument I would say with anyone, whether you care or not, is that the way we proceed now, everybody is losing. So first the animal, the staggering numbers. You know, this is really a wholesale massacre. We can say that. I mean, then the climate change. Now, all the study of the IPCC, FAO, has shown that the whole chain of you know, leading from deforestation to meat production, methane emission by pigs and, and, and cows and so forth, is the second uh, cause of greenhouse gas emission, 15%, after habitations and buildings and before even transportation, before those, those nasty cars and planes and ships. It is the second cause. Then you have poverty in the world. You know, we ship now about 800 million tons of corn, soy, and wheat from Latin America and Africa to the richer countries in the north for meat production. This could feed over a billion human beings in those countries who often need food. In Ethiopia, during a famine, they were still shipping grain to UK for meat production. So that's another aspect. The, the fourth aspect is that you say, well, you know, it's indispensable for health. Well, too bad. It turns out it's not, and it's even harmful. There have been many longitudinal studies over 10, 15 years, conducted on 100,000 people, including in Harvard, showing that regular meat eaters every day have actually an increased chance of having colonic cancer, you know, cardiovascular disease, to the extent that the WHO, I think last year, did a meta-analysis of 600 studies and concluded there are probably a risk of cancer, there are like a class B uh, carcinogenic uh, substance to eat meat every, every, every day. So basically, everybody's losing. So why are we continuing? It's habit, tradition, there was an interesting survey done in Australia. Why do you want to continue eating meat if you were to know all these things? Well, 70% said, well, because I like it, full stop. That's not a very uh, powerful ethical argument. Second, oh, because my family does it, so it's a bit odd if I don't. Tradition again. Right? And then because I don't know what to cook. Well, there's plenty of good things you can do. So not even an uh, health reason, much less an ethical reason. So sometimes if I happen to do a talk, I ask people, are you in favor of justice and morality? So everybody raise their hand. So is it just and moral to inflict unnecessary suffering on sentient beings? Everybody says, of course, no. So that's it. You know, there are very, very few people on earth, like Eskimos and few coastal people, who really, whose life depends on fishing or hunting or Oh, yes, or rising livestock. But the vast majority, it will be so much better to use, even in poor areas of Africa, to use the land for crops rather than, you know, the livestock is very, uh, actually, has a negative effect on the land 
uh, on making, you know, getting rid of vegetation. So the world would be much better to feed the poor if we were focusing on, on this kind of diet. So then, you know, you wonder. So it's good to know that, and then people make their own decisions. Yeah, but it's, it's I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to dispute any of your facts, uh, it, but it is nonetheless kind of a, just a pain in the butt to make this change. I have to convince my wife. I got to figure out, like, <laughs> how am I going to feed my one and a half year old? If I'm not going to give him animal products anymore, uh, so, do I not cook him eggs in the morning? It's just, it, well, it's not easy. Well, first of all, uh, you people could do gradually. You know, this drastic decision from one day to the next to become vegan or something. Well, you know, everything has to be done. You know, in an organic way going slowly about it. But the, again, the science is very powerful behind that. You know, recently in the French schools, there was a proposal to have a, a vegetarian alternative. You could choose a vegetarian diet, not impose it, but you could choose. Everybody wants berserk, you know. Oh, those poor kids, they're going to become anemic and so forth. So I was on a radio show like now, and uh, a deputy MP said, "No, those children they need me to for iron and for all this and that." I say, and say, but you know, all the scientific studies show just the opposite. Say, no, my dietitian says that. He say, based on what? If you show me a single study, saying that people are in better health if they eat meat regularly than not, then I will go along you. But there is none. There's all the opposite. So just to dispel, you know, misconception. The FAO did a review of the 100 types of food that are most used throughout the world and analyzed the protein content. Well, guess what? The first meat, pork meat, 22%, come in 13 position. So first is yeast. Of course, you're not going to eat yeast all day long. It's 45%. Then the different variety of tofu, 35% of protein. Okay, maybe I don't want to eat tofu all day long. But, you know... <laughs> Avocado, but lentils protein. and uh, red beans, twenty-seven percent, much more than meat. And then the first fish is eighteen percent tuna. Eggs is twelve percent. Milk is seven percent of protein. No, then they say okay, but there's not the thirteen essential amino acids. You don't find them complete, say in a vegan diet. Well, this is based, of course, the f food industry is f strong behind that argument, on a study in 1935 made with rats. <laughs> it's completely obsolete. Now, the proper studies have shown that if you eat your fill, that means if you are not hungry at night, purely on a vegetarian basis, you do have the 13 essential amino acids in sufficient quantity. And then the cherry on the cake is that a British insurance company is giving 20% rebate on life insurance to vegetarians. So they know the numbers. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not actually um, my beef with this is not on the math. It's it's the it's on the on the logistics of it. So you're but you basically you briefly said that just take it slow. Do if you want to make the change, don't try to be overnight radical about it. Well, you could if you, some people, you know, in a way, it's, uh, it's I think for me, it's, I, I feel it's a very easy decision. You know, finish. You and decide, that's what you did. You stop. Yeah. Well, I stopped when I, when I became aware of something. I was like, okay, now I realize that. But that was 50 years ago, by the way. Yeah, but by the way, in the Tibetan tradition, you guys eat a lot of meat. Well, that's, uh, 
uh, in the book, I look at that. In Tibetan, you know, you live at 12,000 feet average. And there's no crop above uh, 10,000 feet. So they uh, depend on livestock. But know that the more and more food comes from China, you know, rice and vegetable, all the, many of the big monasteries have now made the step to become vegetarian. Interesting. So in India especially, there's almost 90% of monasteries they don't cook meat anymore in the kitchen. So they don't impose to the monks if they want to eat outside. It's up to them. But this is getting a strong momentum. But in Tibet, it was, I tell you, it's really tough. I go there. Uh, I cannot be vegan because then I will eat nothing. But I eat curd. But, you know, then it's all about suffering. It's not because curd or eggs are sort of impure or whatever. It's the amount of suffering. Is there free-running chicken, which is almost unknown now. They're all by 200,000 in a big whole and it, like it's a hell for, for chickens. But if they are actually really free, happy chickens, what's wrong? It doesn't harm any, 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 anyone. And if you have the yaks and the female of the yak, the tree that give milks, fine. You know, the, the calf gets some milk, you get some milk, you care for them, you look after their health, you protect them. So it's mutual advantage. So the problem is not about this is wholesale bad, it's what amount of suffering is connected uh, with uh, eating something. So in France now, a glass of milk is almost as much suffering as a steak if you look at those industrial farming where the cows are sitting in a little box. They don't see the sky for their whole life. When they are five years old and they stop, they produce less milk. Immediately they are transformed into you know, meat for the dogs or the cats. So completely instrumentalized. A pig becomes a sausage machine and that's it. It's not uh, living beings. So, yes, again, I'm going to say... I completely agree with you. It's horrifying. Um, I'm just going to throw out some more objections for, for just my own stuff. The other thing that worries me about becoming a vegan, aside from the practicalities of it, um, is um, it's tough socially. Yes, uh, there was a great uh, there was a great cartoon that this is not completely apropos, but it's close enough. There was a great cartoon that ran in the New Yorker recently, and it had two women having lunch. And one says to the other, I've been gluten-free for a week, and I'm already annoying. And there's a way in which that can happen with vegans and vegetarians, where it's not just a dietary choice, it's a cudgel to your conscience. Yes, and uh, it can be very preachy. Okay. First of all, if you come to a place and say, you know, I have diabetes, so I, there's something I just can't eat because I, I feel terrible. Nobody or, cares. Yes. Or I have yeah. a... Terrible allergy. I have a friend uh, who there's a trace of sea products. He faints, literally. So he has to be so careful. His wife goes to the kitchen. Are you sure there's not a single trace of little fish shows or something? Because he just faints. And I've seen him fainting. So everybody understand. You come, you sit there very quietly. You don't say anything. You don't bother anyone. You just order vegan food. Everybody looks at you. Is that a reproach against us? Yes. Why? Because suddenly... Because they know it's wrong. You, b you <laughs> break the statu quo yes. and there is a moral stand. Even you don't say anything. So that shows that there's something wrong. Yes, you're reminding so no. people. So the you're best reminding way people. is going about in a humorous way, I found. Uh, that's good. So you know, when I go to the restaurant and the server says, oh, you are vegetarian, so you eat fish, right? I say, look, Everything that flies, everything that swims, everything that runs, they're all my friends. 
and I don't eat my friends. And they say, oh, and then they get it. So, and then people say sometimes, oh, does it bother you if we eat meat? I say, no, it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> Maybe it bothers a little bit <laughs> the steak that is in your plate, but it's a bit too late. <laughs> so try to make it you know, a little bit more light and say, you know, it doesn't bother me at all, just like that. You know, I've made a choice. And, and then it's more and more common. I mean, I was very surprised when I went to Princeton University. And we went to the, the canteen. You can't believe the whole first 50 uh, meters of the, when you go for the self-service, is huge panels, vegan, vegan. And I heard that 25% of students now in Princeton are vegan. This is quite amazing you know, compared to Europe. So it's, you know, Bill Clinton is vegan, and I guess he has a social life. <laughs> yes, yeah, he's got a social life. So if Absolutely. you make it not in a you know, sort of a preachy way, very humble and you explain if they want and then you say you know it's just uh, I try my best to, to live not at the cost of other suffering but you know it's completely up to you I'm not uh, sort of trying to make you feel uncomfortable and people sort of if you are nice they, they there are ways to uh, make it seems giving more food for thought than being aggressive and so forth. But you, the bias is present. There was an analysis of the vocabulary used in the press associated with vegetarian and vegans. And you have a lot of negative connotation, you know, extremist, even violent. Let's imagine that we are going to put bombs in the in meat factories or something. Well, you know, speak of non-violence, it's the most non-violent diet you can imagine. So there is this kind of trying to demonize a little bit those who do that because it questions our own stand. And as long as the statue quo, everybody is comfortable, when you show that it is possible to do otherwise, then the cognitive dissonance becomes clear. What about your shoes and your watch? I noticed you're wearing a watch. Yeah, what are well, your the watch had a hard time to find a bicycle, but shoes, they are made of, of rubber. Okay. And they look like... Uh, so I try my best. But one could take this, but once you get out of the realm of food and get into sort of everything you buy, you could go pretty far. I mean, I'm wearing a, an Apple Watch. Um, I don't think there's any animal products in here, but what about the labor standards in the factories where it was made? I don't know. I mean, uh, what, about, what about the nat natural resources that are harvested to make this thing? What about the recycling of this thing? So one, you can yes, get sure, crazy. Sure. Listen, the main thing is there is a, huge unbalance towards tremendous suffering in animal dream. We have, we recognize that there are somehow sentient beings. And when we hear of people who do terrible things to pet animals, they all get all fired up. Yeah. In France, there was two years ago, a guy in south of France, he, took, he picked up a little cat, a very sweet cat called Oscar. After that, we knew it. And then he started throwing it in the air, throwing it against the wall, little red cat, and filming himself stupidly and putting on YouTube, even more stupid. So people traced him, you know, all the, the IT people, they managed to find him. The whole France was speaking about Oscar the cat. So there is this kind of thing. We don't tolerate this kind of, you know, unhuman behavior. Fine. But the same day... <laughs> 500,000 animals were slaughtered in horrendous condi condition in slaughterhouses. So you see, again, it's not that we need to... And then if you want to show those images on TV, they say, oh, no, 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 it's so shocking. But look at midnight, you get these horror movies where people you know, cut themselves with big monsters that come and blood all over the place. 
well, that's at least fiction. No, but you don't want to see the reality. So the main thing is to know about that and then decide slowly with your own consciousness, okay, if there's something uncomfortable, there must be a reason. We want to be good human beings, so maybe slowly we can now readjust our behavior to be more attuned. So now, do your best. You don't know, have to be obsessed, sort of so extremist, sort of diminish suffering as much as we can. When we know it's possible and easy, not do wholesale inflicting suffering that when it's so easy not to do so. Now, I tease it, you don't have to be completely obsessed with that, but already doing that will make such a difference. It will make a difference for climate change, will make a difference for poverty in the world, will make a difference for the animals, will make a difference for human health. So that's already big sort of advantage. You have, you were telling me before we started recording, as you've gone out to discuss this book, You've gotten some pushback. People have get, people. This, this thesis makes people angry sometimes. Uh, yeah, was, uh, because uh, you were saying that some people have told you it's it's downright indecent to be talking about animal welfare when there's vast, immeasurable, incalculable yes. amounts of human suffering in Syria, for example. So when they tell you that, you, know, you feel most bad. You know, oh, I'm only caring for pigs, and then there's all this terrible thing happening. So you go, oh yes, okay, sure. But you know, think of the argument. What does it have to do? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what uh, killing 60 billion land animal and a trillion sea animal, how does that help Syria? And not doing so, how does that help human rights in China or, or South Sudan? So this is unrelated. Uh, and then if you, you see, and sometimes, of course, if, you were, if I said if someone is 24 hours uh, busy helping Syrian refugees, please don't stop. But, you know, you do gardening on Sundays, you go to the beach, you listen to music. So at that time, nobody says you are an abominable person because you are not in Sudan helping people. You know, we have a life that has many preoccupations. And also there's this idea that is like a quantity, you know, that you have that much compassion or that much altruism that you can have. Like a chocolate cake, you can only have 10 pieces, so you give to your kids. You can't give to everyone in the world. But this is not like that. This is an attitude. This is a way of looking at others. Do you look at others with indifference or with care? So, in fact, this idea that you would love less human being if you care for animals is damn wrong stupid because, in fact, by fragmenting your benevolence, say if you only love your kids and you don't care the rest of humanity, obviously it's a very biased, narrow kind of love. And if you extend to other kids, to other human beings, obviously that love has a better quality. Like the sun shining on everyone is warmer and brings more light than if you just shine on one person. So I contend that if you include, if you extend the circle to other species, you will also be somehow more compassionate even for human beings. And there is a, a scientific study that corroborates that in neuroscience. They took 100 people, 50 vegetarians, so it was easy as a criteria because you not just animal sort of who care for animal, but vegetarian for, for ethical reasons, not just for health. And then 50 regular control group. And you show them images of suffering, both human suffering and animal suffering. And it turns out that the vegetarian 
were more sensitive to both human and animal. Well, of course, suffering. that's why they became vegetarians. So, in a way, you know, compassion should know no barriers. But that means you don't just obsess with animal rights and then don't care for humans. I see, I see. You see? see. Because, and then the French poet Lamartine, I I quoted in an excerpt of my book, he says, you don't have two hearts, one for humans and one for animals. You have a heart or you don't. And when those French philosophers said, you know, it's indecent, I don't know, look, you know, with our uh, organization, Karuna, last year we helped 400,000 human beings in the realm of health and education in India, Nepal, and Tibet. So we did our share and if, <laughs> for human beings. And if I had been nasty, I would have asked, what do you do for human beings? <laughs> and it turns out that, you know, people who really engage in social activities, they also often are those who care most for animal rights. And if you look in history, the first people who mi- were, were militant for human rights, for the right of women, they were also some of the pioneers uh, who raised the issue of animal welfare, animal well-being. But in our closing minutes here, I would love to talk to you about a related but slightly different subject, which is your personal meditation practice. Could you just tell tell us whatever you're comfortable telling us about what sure. you what your daily practice looks like? Well, you know, daily practice when I travel all over the place is t- I try to live on my credit, <laughs> but I do <laughs> formal practice. But mostly is applying all those years of living in hermitages near my teachers. First, I spend a uh, hermitage. When you say a hermitage, you're talking about like a, just a little hut. Yes. Right? So yeah. first of all, living with a great teacher is, is a kind of practice in itself because the living example is so extraordinary. You know, you spend your life say, with the Dalai Lama. It's going definitely to affect you in a wonderfully positive way. I'm always trying to tell my wife that she gets that benefit by living with me. Okay. It doesn't Good. usually go over I'm sure well. she does. Yeah. So then you also have formal practice. I, I probably spend about five years altogether in solitary retreats in Hermitage. So there's Little Hut. Now I have a Hermitage in Nepal facing 300 miles of the Himalayas. It's about 10 feet by 10 feet with a big window facing the mountains. No heating, and just a little bit of running water and uh, some electricity. So most comfortable place in the world. When I'm sitting on the balcony looking at the mountain, I'm the, really the happiest man in the world there. <laughs> so practice is really, you know, sitting there, turning your mind inwards and try to first cultivate the inner quality that will contribute to flourishing. And then gradually wane out and erode, you know, the mental uh, states of mind that like hatred, jealousy, arrogance, envy, you know, mental confusion, which undermine flourishing. So that's kind of the main goal. As a practice to cultivate qualities and use antidotes against those mental toxins. So that's kind of the process. Then there is something else. As I mentioned in the beginning, just resting. Resting in this pure awareness that is free, that is sort of has some kind of very, very peaceful and rewarding aspect. And there is a state of really freedom that is so sort of, I don't know, it was one of the most fulfilling mental states I can imagine. So to cultivate that, to become familiar with that. So that's a very powerful meditation. There's also an analytical meditation. 
And the Dalai Lama stresses the importance of that. Say we are very attached to the self. So where is that self? How does it work? Does it really exist or is it just a mental construct? So that's also helpful to function better in the world. So let me see if I can describe back these three, just so that our users can, my listeners can wrap their heads around it. So you describe three styles of practice, and I'm going to see if I can describe them back. One would be a compassion practice where you're generating the feeling of loving kindness toward yourself and then all beings? So should I give an example about compassion practice? Yeah, do it. Okay. So first of all, you need to start with something easy. You know, if you start with uh, trying to feel meditation for Saddam Hussein or something, not so easy. So you, you imagine in your mind uh, like uh, someone, like, like, a, like a child, innocent child is a good example. Everyone will, I think, will agree on that. And then you see it vividly in front of your eyes, in your mind, and you feel unconditional love to that child. May that child be happy, flourish in life, be spared, no unnecessary suffering or untimely death. Just pouring love to that child. Every atom of that child is pervaded with atom of love. Okay. It fills your mental landscape. But instead of having that for 15 seconds, as we do sometimes when the child comes in our arms, we try to maintain that, to nourish that, to cultivate that for 10, 15 minutes. It's just the extension of that. And if it declines, you revive it. If you're distracted, you come back to it. If it becomes dull, you make it more vivid. So like that. Then you extend that. Why only my child? Why not other children? And then where to stop? 10 years old? Doesn't make sense. So you start to extend gradually all human beings. None of them wants to suffer. It doesn't cost more to let that sun shine on, embrace all human beings. And then you come to other species. Why not? They also don't want to suffer. And finally, you know, when you become more familiar with that, you come to the difficult case, you know, compassion for Saddam Hussein or Bashar al-Assad. What does that mean? It doesn't mean condoning their dreadful actions, barbaric acts. It means, oh, it will be so great if the hatred, the indifference, the cruelty that makes that person harm so many beings, if that could be eradicated, or if we could make an environment through education to prevent such things. So that's compassion. That's not stupidly, you know, oh, it's not so bad. If I give him a ticket to go on holiday to the Bahamas, he might behave better. Not that, but compassion aims at removing suffering wherever it is, whatever shape it takes. It's different from moral judgment. So that you can wish to the worst dictator. May that person change. May the hatred disappear from his mind. So like that, gradually, you train your mind. And at the end, you will spend another few minutes just resting in pure sort of quietness of this basic nature of mind. And then at the end, before you get up, say, oh, may by the whatever constructive I've generated during those few minutes, may that serve to continue a process of transformation like a stream that's starting and benefit beings in the immediate and in the long term. So make this aspiration that this may continue and not just be a nice session that you go to a spa, get a massage and relax <laughs> and start all over again <laughs> as if nothing happened. <laughs> okay, so that's one kind of practice. The yes. other you described was more of what, what I would refer to as an open awareness where yes. you're uh, basically allowing the mind to do what the mind does and you're just being mindful of the contents of your consciousness. You see, 
if you take the example of the sky, when there's too many clouds and thunders and a lot of birds, we forget about space and about the sky itself. So we are completely enmeshed in this weird pool of thoughts going all over the place. So there's nothing but thoughts. And then we run after some thoughts, try to stop some other thoughts. So it becomes really busy. But if we can start from a space that is a clear sky, you know, and then we can do that easily, especially that's why sometimes the natural places are useful. If you're in Hermitage with a big blue sky, it's kind of natural to blend your mind with this big sky outside. Let's state. Then thoughts will come inevitably. If you try to prevent thoughts from coming, it's not going to work. That's not meditation. Thought will come, but it's like a bird passing through the sky. Provided it doesn't leave trace, it's fine. The risk is when you amplify that thought. You run after the thought. Oh, why did it that to me? One thought. Mm, then everything starts building up, building up, building up, and your proliferation of thought invades your mind. You're gone. Finish. Meditation is gone. So you let that thought come. It's coming anyway. You can't wish that it's not there. Let it pass. Another one, come, let it pass. Even many births might come, many thoughts. Still, you, be, you keep the awareness of the sky behind. You never lose that. So that basic awareness. So some moment there's no birth. You rest in that open presence. That's awareness. Some moment there are birds, clouds. Okay, but the space is still there. You are aware of that awareness beneath the thoughts. So they don't really harm the meditation. See, you have to get to a state where thoughts do not harm meditation because you are still aware of that basic awareness beneath, self-awareness. So, I'm, I'm, so that's the secret. Yeah, I'm still working on that. Um, and then the third you <laughs> described was this analytic meditation, which I, I took to mean sort of uh, looking for the self and seeing that it's, it's an illusion. It's one aspect, looking yeah. for the self, looking for solidity of, of outer phenomena. It's, for instance, the self, okay. If the self is the central core of my being, the most important thing, then, of course, I have to protect it, to please it, and we do function like that. You know, if someone insults me, it really hurts somewhere. Okay, so if, since it is so important in our life, it, it plays such a role in determining our happiness or our misery, I think it's wise to examine whether it is really there as some kind of entity that is the essence of our life, or if it's just an imposture <laughs> or just something we made up. So then the analytical meditation comes in. Okay, how do you do that? For instance, someone pushes you. So he pushed me. So that means he pushed me is the body now suddenly. And then you say, oh, you hurt my feelings. Wow, now the self is the, in the thoughts, the feelings. But you say, my feelings. So there's somebody with the owner of the body and the feelings. So the self is sometimes the body, sometimes the feelings, sometimes... The... So you say, where is the self in the body? So you look and you find it nowhere, of course. If you lose your legs, of course, you, it, it has psychological consequences, but still the me is there. The self is not just half. Okay. Then you say, oh, it's in the mind. Great, but the mind is past thought. They have gone. Future thought, they are not yet here present moment is ungraspable. So how could a solid self be suspended in all that in between something that doesn't exist anymore, something that's not exist yet, and something that is ungraspable? So at the end, you can't find that, and that non-finding shows that, yes, there is a self, but it's a conventional self, like you call a river the, a river the Mississippi. 
So it's a name. It's convenient to describe what the Mississippi is, why it goes, how is the river flow, what are the, uh, the quality of the water. But there's no a little head that comes up every year and say, I am the real Mississippi. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> so to know that is fr- gives you freedom. And you can see, and again, we see it a lot these days, how an exacerbated sense of self leads to narcissism to people who are not, who don't feel good to be around them. When some others who have a very transparent self, like the Dalai Lama, he says, well, some people think I'm a living God, nonsense. Some say I'm a demon, nonsense. I'm a simple human being. So that more transparent self leads rise to beings who are good human beings. It's good to be with them. They are less self-centered. They are more compassionate. So this is the result of having discovered that, yes, the self is a convenient sort of label or illusion. We need to have that. It simplifies things, but it is not this kind of very core essence of our being that we must protect and boost at all costs, because that leads to actually suffering. What a pleasure to spend an hour with you. It's like a delicious vegan meal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, how can they? Fi- obviously, the book, A Plea for the Animals, the, your previous book was called Altruism, which is a giant book. Uh, <laughs> and, it, and when you sent it to me, people came to my office and said, somebody thinks you need you have a lot to learn about uh, altruism. Um, <laughs> you also wrote a book called Why Meditate. But if people want to get your books, I, I assume they can do so on Amazon. But is there any way to learn about more about you and your, your Karuna? Well, um, we have a Karuna session. Karuna means compassion in Sanskrit. And session is the name of our monastery. So you can see our website. How do you spell session? Uh, S-H-E-C-H-E-N. Okay. Karuna is K-A-R-U-N. N-A. And you can also find it, someone made a website for, with my name, which I feel a bit embarrassed, maturica.org. It was initially for my photography. Uh, you know, I did have a number of books of photography. Mm-hmm. But then it spilled over, in including, so there's a sector for the humanitarian projects, which leads you to the other website. So it's easier with just looking for my, my humble name. And then, uh, well, you, s- you can see different activities that we try to do at the service of others. You can't find the self when you close your eyes and look for it, but you can find the self if you Google it. Yeah, it looks like it's all this <laughs> modern age, you know, self-promotion and names. But if you don't put your name, that they cannot find you, which is sometimes when you try to serve in the world and, I know, have these activities uh, like we do, it's helpful to be able to find the pl- where, it, where it happens. I hear you. Thank you very much. Most welcome, Dan. Thank you so much. All right, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor. Please subscribe to it, review it, and rate it. Uh, I want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. And uh, hit me up at Twitter, Dan B. Harris. See you next time. Hey, one quick note before we let you go. 10% Happier, the, the app company, is hiring right now. If you're a software engineer or a marketer who's interested in joining our growing little band of misfits uh, in Boston, which is where our uh, company is located, even though I'm located in New York, uh, you can check out 10percenthappiercom slash jobs. 10percenthappiercom slash jobs if you want to join our team. If you like 10% Happier, 
and I hope you do. Uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.